Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show. This week we are talking with the rather difficult topic of life planning and more importantly, how dynamic your financial plan needs to be to help you traverse some of the expected surprises that come along and then the more sinister, unexpected ones. Having a plan is crucial for that. It's going to give you certainty in what can be an incredibly uncertain world. Make sure you take plenty of notes, but as always, make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Dynamic soup, that one AB, which ties in very nicely with today's episode, believe it or not, because we are going to talk about the dynamics of life planning. Yet again, under the financial planning series of episodes that we have, albeit one of the most important ones, I would, I would say. Certainly is. And, and, and this whole notion of having a plan for anything in life, whether it's your goals for your, your in personal life or in business or whatever it might be, you have to have a very, very clear set of objectives. Any road will take you nowhere. I guess the biggest challenge, like anything in life, there are always setbacks. And so you need to bring some flexibility to where your goals are. You need to be absolutely steadfast and resolute on what they are and the determination to get there. But you have to be incredibly flexible on the pathway that you take to get there because there are always bumps in the road uh, that potentially could knock you off course. And I guess financial planning and particularly the dynamics of financial planning is a, a particularly important thing to acknowledge. You yeah. may have a great plan, but is it life-proofed? For sure. And I know anyone listening to this, whether you're accumulating wealth, transitioning to retirement, or you are retired, will get plenty of benefit out of this. Mm. Probably the best place to start though, AB, as I know we always harp on about, because it's true, is working out what exactly that you want and your goals. Yeah, I guess, I mean, in this conversation, Mitch, it's going to bring together a lot of the things that we've talked over previous weeks about. And and it's a really neat little um, structure that you've given us there in terms of that accumulation transition. And then I guess what financial planners call the drawdown stage, they're typically the three uh, stages of a financial plan. And each one of them carries its own series of challenges with it in terms of action steps that you need to take. I guess landmines you need to avoid treading on. And most importantly, an acute awareness that the best laid plans in the world can get blown out of the water. And so, you know, if you've had a setback or something that's blown you off course, that's expected. And it may be something that you didn't expect. It could be, you know, a force majeure or something that's completely out of left field. But setbacks are expected. We just don't know what particular wrapping paper they're going to come in. And I guess we'll explore some of the particular um scheduled ones that most people come across and maybe one or two of the ones that are definitely left field and they can be harder to to deal with you know things that are expected you can have a game plan for but when it comes out of left field that can be more challenging but if you're expecting something to come out of left field and you don't know what it is at least you're kind of on the front foot you're in a better position and someone's a deer in the headlights sort of why has this happened i don't understand and they sort of get paralyzed with fear for the next five years working it out not a good place to be and i know that if you know what you want you've got some goals and some plans around that as you say it's going to significantly affect what that course of action might look like for Mm -hmm. example if you are accumulating wealth which is probably the best place for us to start here ab what does that look like that accumulation of wealth stage the accumulation phase, you know, you're probably just starting your career, um, either out of school or out of uni. If it's out of uni, you may have some hex debt that you're chipping away at. As you know, your hex debt is actually not a bad debt insofar as, you know, it doesn't carry interest for a start. It's more inflation related, although at the moment with inflation, moving okay. higher, it's a little bit more punishing. And that focus of getting all the core skills that we've talked of previously, you know, that that, that emergency funding, uh, that three months of funding there, and really starting on a defined savings plan where you've got a budget that you're adhering to, all of the core skills are then gonna set you up. And as you transition through that, you know, starting with, you know, getting into the workforce, one of the early things that 
come across might be the opportunity to buy your first property. Now, a lot of people sort of will look at that and go, oh, you know, it's out of my reach. It's out of everyone's reach when you're young and starting because you haven't probably accumulated a deposit and you haven't accumulated the savings habit of being able to service debt. So this is an intergenerational issue. It's not something that's true for today's uh, in any uh, any way, shape or form. Then it was different from my parents or indeed my grandparents. It's a challenge, that affordability. And it becomes an increasing challenge because as we're often told, property only goes up in value over time. It doubles every seven years, as the ad often says. You say that, yeah. Whether that's the case or not is immaterial. The bottom line is it does go up in value. So the later you leave it to get started, the higher price of admission you have to pay. So bottom line, very simply, is get started, get your first property as quickly as is humanly possible. I actually saw the other day, the average age in Australia for a first home buyer is 36 years old. Mm. It's a lot older than what I thought. That surprises me. Um, it does surprise me an awful lot, actually. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a, 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 something that's changed more recently where it's moved higher due to you know, perceived affordability issues. I look at my wife. She was 20, 21, I think, when she bought her first property. And that wasn't because she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She would just set the intention that she wanted to own a property. And as she started working, she, she worked very, very quickly toward that. Matter of fact, it was just sold probably about four months ago. So it's been a, a cracking investment for her and her family because, you know, her sisters had the benefit of it as well. And Great. on it goes. Um, and, you know, at 20, that's an enormous milestone to tick off. Uh, I was a little behind, uh, although I was living in London, so it was a little bit more expensive uh, to uh, to do that. And I think I was 23, maybe 20, I think 23 or 24, I think, when I got my first property. Still pretty young then. Uh, and, in, and in central London too, so yeah. Yeah. And gotcha. you're, you're across the line too. And, 21 you know, for me. The, uh, and, and, and the reality is the sooner you can get cracking on it, the better because you've got that asset there working for you. It also means that your money that you're earning is funneling into servicing a mortgage as opposed to giving you the ability to have some discretion over it. So that first and foremost milestone, you know, getting that property under your belt. Um, for, for many people in a in traditional sense, and, and I guess some of the things I might say might seem a little bit antiquated and traditional, but that's the lens that we look through at tradition, and then you can take your derivative or variation from that. Perhaps uh, moving in with a partner and eventually getting married is the next phase. Um, you know, pooling money, pooling assets, that's a huge um, step for many, many people. And I think the older you get, the harder that is to probably do. Uh, and that notion of having joint bank accounts and buying properties together and all those sorts of things can be, you know, can be really quite confronting. And so having a, a team money plan is crucial. It's one of the reasons we talk about date night. So both of you are on the same page that together collectively you're working towards a common goal. Uh, and, and, and so that's a big one. Then along come kids. That's a big thing to plan for, right? It's I can enormous only imagine. to plan for. And it's a, it's a biblical expense. Uh, for, for many, many households uh, in that it's not just having children. It then goes through the next phase. Your overall bills become higher because of food consumption. I certainly look at my lad at the moment who's who's uh, seven and uh, it's like a, a wood chipper. Yeah, I can't put enough food in the boy. He's has he's, a new motorbike. Just got a new motorbike. So he's pretty happy about that. Yeah, awesome. he, he's um, so he's going along pretty well. So you put your ongoing costs uh, and, and this is why budgeting is such an important uh, fundamental task. These are things you can plan for. You're having a family, so you start to save up for things like a cot and car seats, or maybe you've got to change the type of car you have so you can accommodate your kids. It may be that you've got to move move home from maybe the bachelor pad, which may have been the first place that you had, which it was certainly in my case, and move into more of a family-style home and uh, and go from there. So there are, there are costs associated with that, particularly if you have a larger family. Um, and then moving through that space, 
spectrum, I've got five kids. So you, you, you think about clothing, think about dentists, think about um, you know all the consumption, food, all of those things, and then you potentially then have school fees if if it's important for you to put your kids through a private school. So can I just stop you yeah. there, Ab? Because listening to this, mm. and there is so much to plan for. How many kids are you going to have? How expensive are they going to be? What clothes do they wear? Gender, everything that they that you need mm. for them. How in the hell do you plan for this? Make a lot of money, and uh, <laughs> I think um, you know, it, 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 that that's a really good question. Sometimes, of course, children can be unplanned, uh, and, and and that can really be an external shock uh, to to your financial plan. I think we were initially planning on. I always thought two. Well, I, I always said before I got married, I'd have four kids. Then after I got married, I thought well, two is good, and then we had three, and and now we're blessed to have five. You figured out what's causing it yet? Worked out what's causing it. Quality um, problem to have. It, uh, yeah, well, it's, anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. It's uh, a <laughs> good leisure activity. Um, and the bottom line at, at the end of the day then is schooling. A lot of people put emphasis on they want to send their kids to a private school. You know, you may be looking at 30, 40 grand a year per child. Obviously, it's after tax. So you need to make sure that you're in a position where you can squirrel away that cash uh, to really do it. And there's a trade-off. So the kids go to private school or buying an investment property or properties which is the best solution to what your goals are. And I think, you know, this can be very, very confronting as an parent because you want to give your kids the best opportunity that you can. And oftentimes social pressures can push you into making decisions that aren't necessarily consistent with that. So my wife and I went through this, neither of us went to, I went to a really rough school in the UK. You know, I got stabbed at school, it's a, it, was a, it was a rough school. Holy smokes. And, um, and my wife um, went to a good school, it wasn't a private school, it was a state school, um, where both of her parents were teachers, funny enough. And, uh, and, and so neither of us were from a private school background, but at one phase we had two of our kids at a private school prior to moving, uh, because we felt that that was the, the thing that we needed to do, we were in a position to afford it. And on reflection, it wasn't the right call because it didn't suit either of our children's personality Fair at enough. that particular time. Uh, and I've seen them thrive, particularly so in their current schooling. So that social pressure of, okay, you know, you're affluent, so your kids should go to a private school and you can network with other like-minded parents and, and the doors open and all that sort of stuff. Quite frankly, that's not something at this particular point in time, uh, as a truly honest answer, I stack an enormous amount of value on having seen how it is and, uh, and where my kids are right now in, in, a, in, a, in a state school. Gotcha. So that can be a real millstone for a lot of parents and it, it, it is a very, very expensive pathway to then take. And then post-schooling, you know, there's the possibility for university uh, and if you've got cash, they're not going to get that much help out of the government for it. You're going to have to underwrite a lot of that. So it's being able to forward plan. And I guess that's the key thing with all of this is that it is you need to have a plan for how you're going to fund this because you can't earn enough working to support those kinds of expenses comfortably unless you're on a particularly high level of salary. So you have to get investing early, maybe prior to the kids or even at the early stage with the kids so that that, that well that you dig early on has got the ability to be drawn for water in five or eight or 10 years time or 20 years time as you need it. You know, dig the well before you need the water as the, as the saying goes. So with this AB, when you talk of planning, does this mean sitting down with the financial planner years in advance and saying, we're thinking of having kids at this age, buying this many properties, sending them to this school in every little detail so that you can start to develop a plan well, that, for that, that, that's a that's, that's sort of a pretty, pretty anal and very intricate plan to put down. But if that's what you've put down on paper, if you fall short of that, that's okay because you've set the benchmark really high versus, oh, well, we'll, we'll just rub through life and see what curveball it throws at us and we'll deal with it as it comes along. And it's like anything in life, Mitch, and you, if you're in the reactionary mode 
And you, just to give you a really simple example in our space, in the trading space, this is why we have our clients write down and adhere to a trading plan so that when unforeseen events happen, they've got an immediate course of action they've planned for, as opposed to what's the vibe on the day for doing it. Because those sort of seat of pants decisions are very reactionary and they tend not to be so good. So even though you, it, it seems exaggerated to sit down with your advisor and say, look, we're planning on having maybe two or three kids over the next five or eight years. You don't know when you're gonna fall pregnant, if, you, if you're blessed enough to better have children, etc." But you can start the work early and go, well, if that's your plan, then maybe now is the time for you to be doing X, Y, and Z so that if what you're aiming for comes true, you know, financially you're in a position whereby, um, you know, you've, you've been able to use the cash you've got today because you got the cash today, you'll find a way of spending it, better off getting it invested so it grows. And I guess the, the, the whole point to this um, particular narrative is you can't, you can't save your way to financial success in any way that you can't earn enough money to cover those expenses. You have to get your money working for you. So that's why getting invested early is so critically important. And, I, and I, from, the, from the sound of our conversation, it sounds as though this accumulation of wealth is arguably the longest phase out of the three, I would say. It, it, it is effectively because you've got to, don't forget, we're just talking about having a family at this point in time. You know, kids have finished uni, maybe they might get married. I've got four daughters. Oh, true. So, like you know, I've, I've got the potential. Well, I'll be pretty good at father of the bride speeches, I reckon, by the time we're all so, yeah. done. Um, but, you, you know, if you're old school and you go, well, you know, you're going to pay for the wedding. That, that, that These are all things that you need to maybe consider within a plan so that as and when those expenses come along, uh, you're in a position where you can, you can deal with them, which is which is extremely important. And we've only just focused on some narrow family stuff here. These are all things that you go, wait, how can you plan for all that? Well, quite simply, you have to start getting your wealth accumulating by getting it invested. So a nice portfolio of shares or exchange traded funds or a property or two or three and contributing to your super. So you're getting that tax benefit from it and, and, and it's growing now ready for your retirement down the line are all examples of strategies that are gonna help you accumulate wealth so that by the time you need that money, either through retirement or as events come along, um, it's not an external shock that blows you off course and sends you into a panic and go, we, we have no ability to deal with this. Speaking of which, external shocks, mm. now accumulation of wealth, we just said, is the longest phase. So it's likely that if one of these are going to occur, it's going to occur in this phase here. Biggest time window for it, for sure. External yeah. shocks, so things like getting an inheritance, mm. um, what else? I mean, some other big divorce, yeah, something like divorce, that. Divorce litigation is a whole ton of stuff, and, and some of them can be positive. So, you know, it, it, having an inheritance and right now we're in a situation, you know, in our economy. And in fact, I think it'd be fair to say this for pretty much most of the Western world, where arguably the biggest transfer of wealth is going to occur as the baby boomers start to pass their wealth onto the next generation. And, and this is an enormous thing. And you think about it, if your parents have got a house and you're going to be, you're going to inherit that, you know, that's a million, two million dollars, at least in, in the current economy that we're in baseline yeah which is which is a huge injection of wealth for many many people and in some instances it can be you know significantly more than that some people less the bottom line is that what you do with that money when it comes in you can't bank on receiving it you might have a blue with your parents and they might decide that you know the dog's home probably needs it better than you do um but if you are inheriting something like you've got to have a plan for what you're going to do with it and and again you know, financial legacy and financial literacy is something that's you know, driven me pretty hard over the last 20 plus years in my career where 
I think there's a responsibility that comes alongside money that if you leave your kids money, that's one thing. But if you leave them a set of skills to be able to prudently steward and manage that money, it's not this one-off injection of cash, let's go on holiday and have a great time. We'll get the house paid down or upgrade the car. It's something you can actually turn into significantly more than that with the right level of skill. So an external shock like that, um, whether it's planned or you've got aged parents is something that you can then add into your plan to say, okay, as and when we inherit that, uh, uh, then you know, we're going to do this and that with it. And my dad, when my mother passed away, my, my, my father and I have got some investments together courtesy of my mum. And we've got a plan for what we're doing with it. And it's, it's particularly important with things like in the UK where my dad lives and where his properties are. Is, there are things like inheritance tax, for example, that you've got to really you know, tiptoe around and be very, very careful. And you've got to plan towards those things. So there's an example of an external shock as a positive. Not so good one is you get sued. Uh, and, and you find yourself in court for a period of time. And, and we've used previous examples to this, um, where if you're in a high risk position, you know, we talked about the anaesthetist, I think is a high risk profession, um, where, you know, you could potentially get sued. And if you've taken the steps that we've, we've spoken of to get your asset protection in play and your assets held outside of your name, then that's good. If you haven't, you've got a real problem. And, you know, that could be all consuming. You've got to use, maybe you've got to do a drawdown in the, on the property that you live in to fund your legal fees if you don't have, Directors and office holders insurance, another form of risk management if you're in a, 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 you know, an exposed position as an executive. These are all things that you know, a good financial plan accommodates and, and gives you flexibility to be able to deal with. Divorce is, is a huge one, and particularly when you look at the statistics, which, you know, depending on what stats you look at, I'm always minded of the, the joke, you know, 99% of statistics are made up. But, you know, the reality is more and more people appear to be getting divorced in terms of as a percentage rate. And let's say it's 50-50, uh, you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's far higher than that, actually. But let's say it's 50%. You know, what happens in the event of divorce? And I, I've got, you know, one of my best mates has just gone through this and it's catastrophic for him financially uh, because he's, he's, he's made some fairly, fairly poor decisions on the way through. And I think it could have been resolved in a, a lot different way uh, than, than, than where it's ended up. And, you know, family law is an interesting space. I leave that area of expertise to my wife, given the fact that she's a family lawyer. Um, but yeah, there are, there are a lot of different things that you can do in there. So if you've gone through the accumulation phase, kids have gone and then all of a sudden you go, yep, don't love you anymore. And I don't want to be with you. I want to go and do something else and discover myself or, or I've met someone or whatever it might be. How you go about carving up those collective assets that you've worked on, um, is a major shock, but again, doesn't have to be done, uh, in a really toxic and bad way. There are ways that you can work through that with some level of planning and maturity to come out of it where, um, like any good settlement, neither party are un neither party are happy, uh, but it's not catastrophic and devastating in terms of the fees and acrimonious stuff that goes alongside it. So you know that's a huge one. Uh, another one is an injury uh, and, and an ability to work. Uh, and again, it's an external shock. Um, you know, you're happy riding the bike to work one day, getting fit because it's important to have vitality, and you get you know cleared off your bike by somebody in a car uh, and, and you know, fairly seriously hurt. Hopefully that never happens to anybody that's consuming this, but it's a, a reality of things that can go wrong. Uh, and having, you know, um, TPD, Total Permanent Disability Insurance or Income Protection Insurance can then step in and fill that void. But if you don't have those things and can't work, well, that's a, a, a major external shock because you're definitely out of the accumulation phase now and you're into the drawdown phase immediately of needing an income to live off from your assets. And so you, know, you, you have to try and 
check the boxes as much as is humanly possible for all of these things that can come along and more. We're just talking about a handful of them today so that your plan can be flexible enough to ensure that you stay on track towards your goal, even in the face of some fairly significant headwind. There's a lot going on in that accumulation phase. You have to have an advisor. This isn't something that you can cover in a book. It's not something you can cover in a podcast. This is a dynamic conversation because your personal circumstance is going to shift almost every time you have that conversation. There's going to be a new new thread to people's lives uh, and, and a, good, a good robust game plan, in this case financial plan, is going to help with a little bit of left and right sidestepping here and there, keep you moving forward when all of these events come along. So it's a blip in the road rather than the crater that takes you out. Got you. Got you. Let's now change pace, AB, and let's go through that transition to retirement phase. So so assuming you've got across the minefield. <laughs> assuming you've got across the minefield, you've accumulated some wealth, yeah. starting to get older as you are, yeah. and you're transitioning to retirement, be it whatever age that is. What are you looking at doing? What are you planning for? At that stage, um, you've got to work out what retirement actually then looks looks like. And retirement is, is again, in itself is quite a challenging thing for financial planners. And I look at the challenges their guys face when they're helping you know clients put together a financial plan. That yeah, the government legislation, for example, is changing a lot and constantly um, removing the goalposts to different areas. So what does retirement look like? You know, 55, is it 60, is it 65, is it now 67 uh, in terms of the age that you can work to? And, and given the cost of living for many, many people, they are pushing it further down the line um, to, to continue to earn uh, and ensure that they can have a reasonable quality of life. So I think you've got to have a, a pretty good indication. So one of my good buddies, um, let's call him Shoes because that's his nickname, great guy, very successful in the investing space, very, what I admire about um, uh, shoes more than anything else and uh, over the the 30 year friendship we've had is he's a huge planner like massively so very very strategic in terms of playing the long term and we had this conversation not so long ago uh, in terms of well what does retirement look like we've both been we've grown up together we've worked together you know we've we've had setbacks together and uh, and so on and Sounds like a Roman or like a Greek tragedy. This doesn't it? And and we're talking about well, what, you know, what, what's the next phase? And both read this book um, uh, by Arthur C. Brooks. Great book on the next phase of your life as you transition to retirement to to effectively cope with goal setting when you've gone from being very very competitive and driven uh, by goals to okay, well, retirement's the next big goal. What does that need to look like? And it's actually really good having a buddy to bounce that conversation off because he's not showing any signs of slowing down sure. any more than I am because we both love what we do. But you still have to think about what retirement looks like, and that may come down to things like what the budget might look like. And if you've got debt, particularly, uh, one of the things that you simply have to do before you can retire is retire your debt. Um, your ability to service it is is no more if you're not earning. And so restructuring a property portfolio, uh, for example, or if you've got investment loans, restructuring those kinds of things um, are, are essential steps in there. And I think more than anything, that transition to retirement putting a human spin on this rather than just simply money and investing is mentally coming to terms with the fact that you're getting towards the back end of your career. And and, and that is very, very difficult for many people whose identity has always been their career. You meet someone and say, oh, so, so, so what, what are you all about? What's your story? Oh, I'm a teacher or I'm an accountant or I'm a doctor. That's their identity. It and all is, of a sudden yeah. it's like that's robbed away from you and oh, I'm retired. 
Yeah, who are you? Which is, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Life back for sure. But for a lot of people, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a huge reshift mentally. This is going to do with money and investing, but the emotional and mental shift because what's the next what's the next square on the board of, of life after you've retired and it's really death. So yeah, that's a little bit of a morose way to think this, about it. Yeah, this and, is and, and so you've got to transition very carefully and go, okay, this is my next chapter and this is what I'm going to be doing. So it, it, maybe you do have something that you're gonna do part-time and I've got good buddies that, that they sit on boards of companies because they, they are too young to retire mentally. Uh, and, and, and they've, they've repurposed themselves because they feel they've still got something to do. And it's not necessarily about the money, it's about the purpose. Also, the money doesn't hurt because it delays the drawdown phase, which of course is, is the next one on there. And this can be at any level. A very good example of this, I won't use names, uh, and I've got to spend a little bit of time with this particular individual, incredibly smart guy, former Supreme Court judge, got to retire at 65. Now this guy is no question about it one of the most intelligent people I've ever had the privilege to be in a in the company of fantastic wine collection too I might have one of okay. the best wine collections I've Very ever nice. seen. Very envious looking at that. It's like, uh, and and he's gone on now to to work in mediation because he's not able to sit on the on, on the bench anymore. But he's got this enormous you know tapestry of legal knowledge over forty odd years of, of of being in the legal profession, and now he works as a mediator helping fix problems for people based on his experience he's got. So he wasn't ready to put the flag up the mast. I'm sure the money doesn't hurt either. Because actually, it's surprisingly low salary for a judge. You'd be surprised. It's not as high. Okay, that is surprising. Must be pretty good uh, Good enough to buy a decent wine collection. Though, as I was say, very, yeah. very envious of that collection he had. A lot of verticals. That's, that's the thing you want to aspire to next. Okay. So like a 71, 72, 73, right the way through every year. Very impressive. So going on to the, <laughs> forgetting about wine and getting back onto the, the matter at hand, I guess after transition is that notion of the drawdown phase. Which is retirement, right? Mm. Okay. So that's where, you know, effectively your career income has stopped and you're now reliant upon your superannuation and other forms of investment income. And if you've taken the time, almost irrespective of how late you might get to the game, whether you start this in your teens or 20s, which is where you've got yourself to, which is fantastic, or whether you've arrived at the game a little bit later and maybe started this in your 30s, 36, as you say, for the average age for a first-time buyer. According to Instagram reels, yes. Must be true. Definitely Best true. of all facts. Or whether it's 40s or wherever it might be that you've gravitated into this vortex of wanting to learn more about money and getting it there, the reality is you've got to then rely on the income from the work that you've done previously. So you're now drawing from the well. Now my dad's 81, he's still saving, and that's partly because we've done some incredible investing and also partly because of some of the life skill attributes my dad has. He's a great budgeter, always has been, and he's been able to go from literally abject poverty to to being in the rarefied atmosphere that he now is. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. A lot of people are concerned and one of the biggest plans I think uh, or one of the biggest problems for planners uh, in today's world is is a longevity issue whereby you 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 may live longer than your money survives in terms of your That's transition scary. to retirement and those last few years you know when you've worked worked all your life and you're sort of living in poverty, turning the light off and, you know, buying everything that's in the reduced bin at the supermarket. And that's a reality for for, for a lot of people out there because they've either got a deficiency in the plan that they've had, they've had an external shock that they haven't been able to bounce back from. Uh, bankruptcy would be an example of that. Um, or, or, yeah, the, the retirement planning just went awry and it doesn't necessarily have to be your fault. You think about someone that was looking to retire, um, 
two weeks after the GFC. Uh, and oh, all of a sudden that, that, that investment portfolio that you had is worth 30 or 40% less. And look, there'll be cynics listening to this going, oh, well, poor rich people can't... Re-. That's not what this is about. It's the fact that there are events that can go on as an external shock that totally reframe even the best laid plan that you might have had. So you're about to transition into retirement and all of a sudden your asset pool is worth 30, 40% less, uh, which means effectively your income potential is probably 30 or 40% lower than what you were budgeting for. Sure. So a big, big setback in, in, in that space. And that, that, that longevity issue is a huge challenge for financial planners, especially when we've been through a phase, not so much now, but where we've had a lower interest rate and lower return environment for a number of years. The money's not growing as much as it was. The average returns are a little bit lower. So by the time you get to, say, 65, which might be when you want to retire, that pool of asset, which should have been worth, let's say, a million dollars is only worth 850. And again, there'll be people that you know, put up a hate comment about that. We're using that just as an example here. That 150 grand shortfall has a massive uh, impact when you come into retirement in terms of your income. So being able to move the pieces around to suit what's going on in the economy at any given time is key. And just because you've had an investment strategy that's worked particularly well through a certain phase of the economy is not necessarily going to work well for all of your life. So you might have been a property investor and done very, very well with property as so many people have. If we move into a phase where property prices go into a slump, or the vacancy rate, particularly for things like commercial property, for example, or office space given work from home or whatever the particular thing may be, heaven knows with artificial intelligence, maybe nobody will ever be going to work again. All that office space is no longer yielding anything. That can have a material impact. So that swing from a low yielding commercial portfolio into a high yielding residential portfolio would be an example of switching within property to a different performing sector. Or maybe if you've been invested in stocks and the market goes through more of a bear market, maybe moving into a bearish exchange traded fund uh, or more conservative utilities or, or stocks that tend to hold up as well would be a smart move rather than have higher growth stocks. So you need to be able to move your plan around. It needs to be dynamic and it will be like that for its duration from the day you start it until they're uh, reading your will. You're always planning ahead. We keep coming back to this in a lot of our episodes, AB. It's the theme of our podcast, planning, having some action in place to make sure it happens for you. You have to do it, Mitch, and you're right. And and this will seem like a broken record, I'm sure, for many people. You you have to be thinking ahead, and and, and that's the way to get money working. You can't be Johnny on the spot. We go, okay, we're doing this, and and, and being very reactionary. You've got to have a longer-term set of intentions. And I guess just by pointing out some of the things that we have, some of them are obvious life events, and some of them are probably not. Um, But having a game plan or something that you can pull out of the kit bag when you need it rather than then spend, oh, yeah, look, we've had kids that spend a year or two working at what we do next, and you're probably exhausted anyway if you've got a couple of kids. Get that plan in place. So when we have kids, we're going to have to do this instead, uh, or, or whatever it may be, is going to give you that really fluid transition into a better, more functioning life plan that I guess more than anything is, I think the term would be in step with where your life is. When you sit down initially, as you, as you mentioned, with your, your, your planner right at the start, and so this is my perfect plan it might be like you're dancing to a tune but the beats changed so the dance might be really well executed but it doesn't fit the music anymore and you've got to change step and change tempo to to to, to match the circumstances in which you're in and i think financial planning is very much like that whereby you have to have huge levels of flexibility and you can't be frightened to make changes either 
that fear of what to do. And this is why you need to have great advisors. And I guess more than anything, you need to be your best advisor yourself by learning about these things so that you you're able to receive this information, understand what it means and take affirmative action on the back of it rather than go, oh yeah, that was interesting. And it just goes into the, uh, the, the bin of memory that you never actually do anything with. It needs to be more than interesting. It needs to be a game plan that you can follow and execute for the reasons we've talked. Beautiful. Couldn't have said it better myself, AB. Thanks very much for the advice today. It, it, it's a huge topic and it's dynamic. And if we did this interview over again next week, I'm sure some of the emphasis points would change, which reflects just how dynamic a financial plan and life plan truly needs to be. It needs to help keep you on the straight and narrow, even when there are bumps in the road. Key thing is plan and plan for the expected, but have contingencies in play for the unexpected because they'll come along too. Beautiful. Thanks, AB. My pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and share this podcast with someone you know that could benefit from this information. And we'll see you next week.